I'm Tony Epstein, and this is The Magical Mystery Tour, a show that dives into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Today we're going to hear about racism and bias from a meditation teacher and counselor. And then we're going to hear one of the greatest speeches from James Baldwin. Hey, Miles. Hey, Tonio. It's been a long, long time. It has been a long, long time. <laughs> Miles Schertz, you're a teacher and, and counselor. You do couples counseling and individual counseling, and you're a writer as well. You wrote Conscious Communication Beyond Perception and then Conscious Communication for Couples. And the last time we spoke on the air, you wrote an article about your two of your daughters who at the time were in their mid-teens, I believe, and they were saying that they weren't going to get involved in a couple relationship and they weren't going to have a family because relationships were too difficult. They were just too challenging. And, and I remember we had a lot of fun in that conversation laughing about it and also commiserating with that sentiment that relationships are really very challenging. And today, what inspired this conversation was another article that you just wrote about racism and bias and your unique perception of the origin of that kind of bias and racism. So why did you choose to write an article about racism and bias? And where does that understanding come from for you? And how is it related to your work that you do around counseling and meditation and you could call spiritual practice even? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a great question, good place to start. So what inspired this article, I think I'm calling it um, Racism and Our Hidden Mental Programming, is listening to friends, having really good, fairly deep conversations with friends and family in the last few months about racism and noticing that a common theme is people like me, white, you know, people from a fairly privileged background, questioning whether we ourselves were racist. And a sort of a dawning for some of us, kind of a recognition, painful maybe recognition, that maybe despite thinking that we're not racist, maybe truly uh, we're more racist than we thought. Or maybe as the common phrase is being used, racism is is indeed systemic, and that we may think of ourselves as not being racist, but we may 
be acting or responding to people from a place of racism. So the article kind of poses the question of, you know, are we racist? Am I racist? A question I think well-meaning people, a lot of friends and family that I think are very well-meaning are asking ourselves, is are we racist? And when I ask myself that question or when I consider that question, to me the obvious answer is yes. And the article goes on to explain, you know, why I think that way. Before you dive into the article, I would love for you to talk about how you recognized the racism within your own personal experience. Sure. That's a great question. So, yeah, so when I ask myself, um, am I racist? Do I have those qualities, those tendencies? And the answer is yes, I am. Yes, I do. What I notice is that I prejudge people. I, especially in a public setting or seeing someone, you know, on television or on the news or on a movie, I make my mind is making evaluations of them, but just based on their race, their gender, their ethnicity, the way they look, the way they talk. So my mind is immediately forming judgments right away. And a good word for that is prejudgments or prejudice. Prejudice is prejudging. And my mind is clearly prejudiced. It operates that way. It's set up to operate that way. So I notice myself making those judgments and then sometimes acting from them. So, for example, maybe being uneasy. If I'm in a situation, which doesn't happen that often, but if I'm in a situation where most of the people I'm gathered around are black, a different race, I might start feeling, and I likely would start feeling, uncomfortable, uneasy, because they're foreign to me. There's a sense of, you know, I'm not like them, they're not like me, I don't know, you know, how they work and how they think. And so that not knowing, that foreignness, that otherness shows up in my mind as a threat. It feels uncomfortable. Same thing if I'm, you know, as a man, if I find myself in a room full of women, or if I'm in any situation where I'm encountering people that are obviously different from me, I notice that my mind starts being wary, cautious, a little bit defensive. And I think that's a good definition of racism. It's judging someone ahead of time, without knowing them, without having a relationship with them, as someone that I need to be careful with because they might threaten or harm me in some way. So do you think we do that all the time, or is it particularly prevalent in our initial encounter with something new and unknown or unfamiliar? Sure. I think we do it. It's particularly prevalent on first encounter. You know, part of what's I think becoming apparent to a lot of us in this current iteration of the Black Lives Matter movement is just how little, for example, as a white person, I don't think I've ever been in a black person's home. I have friends who are black, I've hung out with them, but I'm not sure that I've ever, you know, visited a black family in their home. So I don't know a lot about, you know, where they come from and how they live and that and the initial experiences of fear of things that I don't know, fear of people I don't know. As I get to know someone, that fear dissipates. So I think it's much more prevalent at the beginning. And or if I've been hurt by somebody in the past, I've never had a damaging or hurtful encounter with a black person. So that's not so relevant. But uh, I've been hurt by women. (laughs) You know, I've I've had relationships 
in which I've been really, you know, emotionally hurt. And it leaves me sometimes being a little cautious around women. Um, so when I've been hurt in the past by a person, I tend to be cautious around someone who's like that person. So that could be another factor at play. Mm -hmm. I can totally relate to that. I also share that unease or kind of distrust around women to some degree. And in the article, one of the lines in the article that stands out, you say, I think of racism the way I think of ego. <laughs> <laughs> so this kind of gets us more deeply toward the crux of this article and what you were writing about. Yes, exactly. That's kind of the main theme that I want to highlight is that I think most people would agree that we have an ego, that we may like it, we may not like it, we may think it's good, we may think it's bad, but I think most of us would agree that we have one, and it's a little hard to define, but to me it's really just the sense of an individual personality, that I'm Miles and I'm different from Tonio and everybody else, this is me and I can stand on my own and I'm you know, a self-defined, self-supporting being, so that's what I call ego, and we all have that, it's kind of at the core of how we identify, and similarly, and very connected to that, I think we all start out, anyway, as racist or prejudiced, that the ego comes with a programming, a conditioning, and that's really the point of what I call spiritual practice, or personal growth, or wellness, mindfulness practice, there's lots of words for it these days, but that type of working on yourself, to me, is really about exposing the patterns that come with the ego, seeing how they don't serve us. Not that they're good or bad, but that they don't make us happy. They don't lead to fulfillment or satisfaction or safety and security, that they don't help us meet our basic needs in that way, and these patterns of the ego, and, and that it's wise to question them and let them fall away. And, you know, and sometimes I call it the undoing of them. And Racism or prejudice is one of those patterns that comes with the ego. It's, it's just built into us. It's baked into our, the way our, what I call our mind is programmed. And I know for some people that might be a stretch to think that your mind is programmed. And I'm not asking you to believe it, but I'm inviting people to observe it, to question it, to see if they can see it in themselves. And one way to see it is to notice that most likely anyone listening to this, I would invite you to look at that your mind has prejudice, that you make up ideas about something before you know what it is. Your mind draws a conclusion about something before you've had a chance to really have a relationship with that thing. That's prejudice, that's prejudging, and that's the essence of, of racism. And it's not really our fault. It, those things are usually a product of prejudices and ideas and notions that we had earlier in life that we picked up from other people. That's right. We can inherit prejudgments, for sure, and, and then pass them on to our, our children. Um, I'm talking about something a little deeper than that, which is simply that it's the nature of, of the way the ego mind operates, that it's, it's a survival impulse to be wary of anything that could be a threat, and essentially in the ego's terms, anything that looks other or different shows up as a potential threat. If you think about our 
you know, ancestors going way back, they lived in a world where a lot of things were threatening to them, and they had to just be constantly defended. And that's the roots of racism to me, is that we, we inherently fear something that we don't know. And to me, that's one of the most powerful parts of this recent iteration of the Black Lives Matter movement, is just listening to the news I'm hearing really good, what I think of as really good stories told by black people about their culture, about their experience. And it's helping me understand. It's helping me relate to people of color in a way that I couldn't before because I didn't understand. And I think that's the way out of this systemic racism is to learn more about each other, to understand more about the other whoever in your life shows up as the other, as someone opposing you or someone who might be threatening you, the more you learn about them, the more you're curious and open to learning about them and understanding why they do what they do, the less you fear them. And the point I make in the article, and I just want to name it now before we get too far into this and we we can come back around to it, but the point in the article is really that the reason to work through your own racist tendencies. The reason to unhook from the mind that's naturally, inherently prejudiced, prejudging, the reason to let go of that and outgrow that is that it makes your world bigger. You become part of something much bigger than yourself when you stop judging things and being afraid of them. And that's a big process. I'm saying it as though it's really simple, It's relatively simple to do, but it's not easy. It's very challenging to us because it means letting go of our ego, our basic thing that we identify with. But the point in the article really is that the reason to do that is not to be politically correct. The reason to work on not being racist is not so that you can feel good about yourself not being racist. It's because it makes you happier. It makes your world more secure. When you can see the other, the person or the, the other race or the other group that somehow feels uncomfortable to you and in some way threatening, when you can see them as part of you, when you can see that other race, that other person, that other group as an extension of you, as connected to you through, let's say, the fact that we're all humans, that we all have that inherent sameness, or that we're all alive, that we're all conscious, If we can see the unity in that, the connection, the inherent way that we're all part of something much, much larger than ourselves, what that does for us individually is makes our world safer, makes us feel more secure. It actually makes us feel stronger and less afraid. And that's a really good thing. It makes life more satisfying. So the reason to work on our own racist, prejudiced tendencies is for us to be happier people. So in the world today, what's happening is, is there's an encountering between elements in our society who I think we would consider to be racist, who are either acting overtly racist without any compunction about it, or else they are refusing to acknowledge their racism while actually acting out in that way. Sure. And that second scenario relates to 
you know, the kind of shame that can arise from the acknowledgement of admitting anything that we don't want to acknowledge about ourselves, something that we think is is bad or, or wrong about ourselves. Yes, so I hear you talking about kind of the common experience a lot of us have that if we admit to ourselves that we're prejudiced or in this case racist that brings on a lot of shame and shame and guilt and we don't we don't like that feeling we don't want to be flooded with that feeling so we deny it i think that's what you're saying and it's really easier to see other people doing that than it is to see ourselves doing it and i think the best use of you know, a teaching like this, listening to a conversation like this, is to just gently but firmly realize that until you admit something, you can't change it. Until I, until I recognize that my mind is going to prejudge things, that that's what it does, that privately in my thoughts I judge everything ahead of time, until I admit that, I can't do anything about it. So a big part of the work of growing up, what I call growing up or becoming more mature as a human being, outgrowing the ego tendencies, is admitting what's not working. And that's maybe the biggest step. And that's why I wrote this article, really, is to say if, if you're asking yourself, am I racist, just try the assumption that, yes, I am, and start to notice it without a lot of heavy judgment of yourself. That's partly what I'm trying to do, I think, in this article and in a lot of my teaching, is take away the negative judgments about it. Yeah, we are prejudiced creatures. That's what humans do, is we judge things ahead of time without knowing what they are. And in the end, that hurts other people, and it hurts ourselves. And we can't change that. We can't outgrow that until we notice it. So it's key, I think, to this conversation that we're having worldwide right now about racism is to notice our tendency to evaluate people according to what they look like. And that's something we all have to pay attention to inside ourselves before we can change it. So what I'm getting from this is that prejudice is like a survival tool that's actually innate in all living beings. And that, like any tool, it has a specific purpose. And if we're using the wrong tool for the wrong job, we're going to get the wrong result. Exactly. And there are appropriate uses for each tool. Yeah. And, and we have to come to recognize, you know, that's what wisdom is, is, yeah. is the recognition of what is appropriate in each situation. And... We generally learn that through trial and error, by making mistakes, and that mistakes are actually a really, really wonderful and actually the most effective teacher that we have, and yet we have, many of us in our culture have been enculturated to be ashamed of our mistakes, which I think makes it really hard to learn from our mistakes. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So... That's a great tie into, you know, the, the question of how do we admit, for example, that we're prejudiced or that we're racist. And the best way is to recognize that, okay, maybe I am, and perhaps it's a mistake, and how I learn is by noticing my mistakes. If I cover up my mistakes, 
or ignore them or pretend that I'm not making mistakes, I can't learn. And it's a really important and difficult process of growing as a human being, growing into a better person to be able to make mistakes because we're going to make mistakes and then to learn from them. So I like what you just said, Tony, about race. We're basically saying racism or prejudice is part of our survival instinct. It's part of what was baked into us long ago when anything that wasn't part of our immediate family or tribe was a threat to us, right? Mm-hmm. And what the wisdom is, is a beautiful word to bring in here. Wisdom is being able to notice that my mind still does that even though it's not necessary. Mm-hmm. My mind still sees other people as a threat even though there's no reason to see them that way. Another way to say this is, it doesn't make me any safer to see, let's say, for example, as a white person, I just inherently feel threatened by black people. It doesn't make me any safer to go around my life like that. In fact, it makes my world more dangerous because every time I see a black person, I kind of tighten up and I feel like I have to be ready to defend myself. (laughs) That doesn't make me any safer. That makes my world tighter and more restricted and more fearful. Whereas if I use wisdom and say, oh, that's just an old pattern in my mind, that's just an old conditioned pattern, and I suspend that pattern, I interrupt that pattern, that's where some practice like meditation or mindfulness is really essential because I have to be able to see the thought that I'm afraid of this person or feel the tension in my body, and then I can relax it, then I can let go of the thought. And that's what wisdom can do for us, is it can say, I don't have any reason to be afraid of this person, so why don't I relax and just go about my life and trust that if I'm in danger, I'll know that. If there's an imminent danger, I'll have the awareness and the presence to be aware of it, and I'll be able to deal with it. But to not automatically assume that because someone is of a different skin color or a different race or a different religion or a different sex than me that somehow they're going to hurt me that doesn't make my world safer and it's not wise and it creates a situation where i'm just constantly on guard and i think this is really a wonderful place where the notion of conscious communication can be brought in to help open up new doorways of possibility and to literally expand our world, make our world bigger, as you mentioned earlier. Sure. So one of the connections there is that conscious communication is just one of the essential foundational concepts of it is learning how to set healthy boundaries. What I was just talking about, going around thinking that someone of a different color or someone of a different religion could hurt me, is a threat to me, that's a sort of a global boundary, right? It's a huge boundary. It's like living life with a a cement wall around me. And it may feel like safety, but it also makes your world very small and tight, and it actually translates into not feeling safe a lot of the time. What conscious communication does is it says, what if I put down that wall, allow myself to be more open and vulnerable, which is always a risk, But the benefit of that risk is that I feel more connection with people. What if I open myself to feeling connected to people and trust that if I need to set a boundary, if someone is imminently threatening me, if 
someone is crossing my boundary in a way that I'm not comfortable with, that I can speak about that. I can use my language and say, I don't feel comfortable with this, or I don't want you to do that, or I need to go take care of myself now. I can use language to set a boundary, and that enables me to not have a fixed boundary that's up all the time. In other words, I don't have to have my guard up all the time. I just need to trust myself that if I get into trouble, if I find myself in a situation that I'm not feeling safe or I'm feeling hurt or my needs aren't being met, that I can speak about that. I can ask the person to stop. I can set a boundary and I can take care of myself. And that allows me to be more open to each person in each moment. And that's a direct way to undo prejudice. The direct way to undo racism is to trust that we can get our needs met in the moment by using our words, our language. And also using our words and our language to engage in an exploration of the unknown world around us. Absolutely. If we cut ourselves off from the unknown world, which is... So think about how sort of primitive and basic this is. The, the idea, the, the basic program of the ego is if I don't know it, it's a threat. Just think about, for example, when you're a child and your parents put some new food on your plate that you've never seen before. Most kids are like, no, I don't like that. That's prejudice. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a prejudice, a very good example of how your mind immediately judges something without ever having tried it. And then... You know, the parents will say, well, how do you know you didn't try? And the child will say, I, I just know. I don't like that. So what that does, if we carry that out through our lives, and most of us do, we, as adults, we're not so open about it. We, we hide our prejudice. We don't want people to see that we're always judging things because, you know, we think it's sort of childish or petty, but it still happens. And if we go around the world doing that, like most of us do, judging everything ahead of time, I like this, I don't like that, our world is really small, and we don't get to explore things. We don't get to be curious and learn about things. We just decide ahead of time, I don't like that. And in doing that, we cut ourselves off. And then we wonder, as adults, especially as we grow older, why our world feels so tight and constricted and and repetitive and small. We feel suffocated, and we often blame it on outside circumstances, your husband or your wife or your job or your financial situation, but really it's the fact that you've eliminated and cut off so many parts of your world by prejudging them that your world gets smaller and smaller. And so the way out of that is to be curious, to take a risk, to be vulnerable, to be curious, to try to understand something that's different, that you don't know, and be curious about it. And to do that, you have to suspend your fear. You have to you have to be willing to take a risk. And survival is really all about maintaining the integrity of our separateness, whereas I think thriving is when we engage with the world and the environment around us and bring it as close to us as possible in a creative and um, kind of synergistic way. Beautiful. I love that distinction between thriving and surviving, really that's what we're talking about here. And that's a choice that we can make, a conscious choice of do I just want to survive? And that's what the ego programming, the the basic sort of, you know, our animal nature programming is just, I'm just going to survive no matter what as an individual isolated. 
and we can do that, but our life isn't very satisfying. It's not fulfilling. It usually feels tight, constricted, you know, uncomfortable. We're afraid a lot. Thriving is when we challenge that and when we push against that restriction in our own mind and we start to embrace differences. We start to see something different, like another race, a person of a different color, and we're curious about them. Instead of being afraid of them, we're curious about them and we want to know more about them and we want to get closer to that person or those people to make our world larger. And you're defining that as thriving and I love that. That's a great way to say it. And thriving is what we're supposed to do here. It's what we really want. We want to be alive and to do that we really have to be connected to the world around us and the ego doesn't work that way the ego is always about disconnecting us from that world in the name of our individual survival yeah and when we're locked in that separate sense of self and really defending it we almost inevitably you know come to this place of having the sense that something is missing something really really important Something really essential is missing. That's right. And we start kind of desperately trying to fulfill that missing element. That's and, right. And we do it, and, and we start out, I mean, we start out in the old, you know, tried and true tradition of trial and error, of kind of like the way an infant will take everything new and put it in its mouth. So, right. <laughs> so we literally try everything that occurs to us to try and fulfill, to fill that emptiness inside. And, of course, in that process, we, <laughs> I mean, pretty much anything can happen. And often a lot of destructive things happen, but hopefully we don't die in the process. And, and what doesn't <laughs> kill us hopefully makes us stronger and wiser. Um, I would love for you to talk about that. <laughs> yes. So what, what's really coming to mind, I love how you're, how you're describing that, is that when we cut ourselves off from the world, which is not something you're consciously doing, it's something that's programmed into you. It's what the ego does innately until you interrupt it, until we each interrupt our own programming. Our tendency is to cut ourselves off from the world. And when we do that, yes, we feel a big hole. We feel a big, big empty spot, which is the hole that would be filled by being connected to the world. But instead we're choosing or... We're going along with our, our hidden programming to cut ourselves off from that world. So then we're desperately trying to fill that hole. And one of the interesting things to notice in our civilization, in our, in our Western affluent, more industrialized culture, is how we've kind of woven that into consumerism and marketing. You know, people have figured out that they can sell people just about anything by claiming that it's going to fill that hole, that it's going to finally make you satisfied. And if you look at all, all of our marketing, which we're all you know, surrounded by all the time, that's the aim of it. And we all are, most of us, are rampant consumers in this culture, you know, because there's this notion that there's something missing, and maybe it's this, so I need to get this, or maybe it's that, I need to get that. An interesting side note is that right now during this virus pandemic, one of the consequences, I think, for many of us is a dramatic reduction in what we're consuming. We're all consuming a lot less than we used to just three or four months ago. And I invite people to notice that you're consuming less. 
and to notice if it's made your life noticeably less satisfying or made you more unhappy. Of course, it's not as convenient. I think we all could agree that these times are difficult because we can't get what we want as easy as we used to be able to get it, and we're having to do with less, not traveling, just accepting the people and the environment we're in. Of course, there's discomfort and disorientation with that, but in the end, I think what this is trying to show us and teach us is that maybe we didn't need all those distractions as much as we thought we did. Maybe we didn't need all those material comforts all those choices that we were used to having in the store that aren't so available anymore. And this is a great time to notice that maybe that's not what was making you happy. That's not what was going to fill that hole. And instead, we could really challenge ourselves to, what if it's my own small mind, my own ego tendency to isolate and insulate myself? What if that's what's really at the root of making me feel so unhappy, and what can I do about that? And I think this pandemic circumstance that we're in with this prescribed isolating in place and social distancing is actually accentuating our sense of what we're more wanting than than the usual things out there in the world that we may be consuming less of, is actually more connection with the people that we enjoy being with the people that we love who may not be within our intimate family circumstance that probably most of us are missing. Yes. Yes. I think that's what the kind of painful but obvious, one obvious lesson from this is to, I hope, and I think it's going to make most of us value our friendships, our community, our connection, because we're, you know, for hopefully temporarily cut off from that. And there's nothing like losing something to realize how much it meant to you. <laughs> I heard a wonderful story on the radio a couple of days ago about a, I think it was a teenage girl who was able to go back to work as a waitress and used to be very shy and kind of withdrawn. And suddenly everyone noticed she was really gregarious and chatty with everyone in the restaurant. And someone said, what changed? And she said, well, during the isolation, during the, you know, the first part of the pandemic when we were isolated at home, I realize how much I love people and how much I miss them, and her whole personality changed. So I think that could be a great benefit for this for all of us when, as we are or when we're finally coming back to our community and our friends and able to be social again in that way, uh, I think we're all going to really value that and, and cherish our friendships. Isn't that interesting how this pandemic is bringing up some very interesting and unexpected results I mean, we would naturally be inclined to be very, very strongly prejudiced against a pandemic like this, a virus. And yet, I think it's, it's actually bringing some amazing new levels of awareness to the surface for many of us in many different ways. And also, actual physical things are happening in the world, like less consumption, less burning of oil, and things that, as you mentioned earlier, perhaps we may actually learn something from that we can carry forward into the future to make yeah. make things better. Yeah, I'm in agreement there. It's also whenever I acknowledge the gifts of this time, and I think it's it's a really good thing to notice that, that some some very positive things are coming out of this really uncomfortable situation of the pandemic. 
and I can see the gifts, I can feel the positiveness, but also to notice that it's creating, for a lot of people, a lot of discomfort and, and pain. And maybe a note to touch here that feels important to me about getting back to racism and the Black Lives Matter movement is that the antidote to prejudging, I think, is empathy. So it's one thing just to say, we've kind of outlined this sketch that I'm saying we're all prejudiced. It's built into the way our, our ego survival instinct is built into us. And there's not shame in that or guilt in that. However, it's limiting us. It's not serving us. It doesn't make us happy or secure. And it's worth undoing it. It's worth challenging it and questioning it. And the first step in that is noticing it. So that's sort of the basis here is that yes we're racist and yes it's not serving us and yes there's something we can do about it and then to say what's an effective antidote and a really effective antidote I'm finding is empathy and one of the great things that's happening now in the Black Lives Matter movement is really detailed stories of what it's like to be black in America really much more detailed than I've heard before intimate, you know, first-person accounts of what it's like for a young black boy growing up, the things their father or mother teaches them about just driving in cars and being stopped by a police officer, and how differently they have to look at that than me as a white person. That allows me to have empathy. When I hear a story like that, I feel that person's fear. I feel the inherent unsafety that that black person's growing up with in a world where a police officer is more threatening than providing safety. And that allows me to have empathy for people of color. And empathy is what connects us. Empathy is what helps me feel connected to them. And if something is going to change in our society, which I think it is and, and should, I think it's going to come from more and more of us having empathy for each other. And a direct benefit to you and me as individuals with empathy is that our world gets bigger. The more we're able to feel other people's suffering and, and care about it, the bigger our world gets. And I think the bigger our world gets, the safer we feel and the more secure we feel and the happier we are. I totally agree with you. But for those people who are experiencing fear around these things, how do you make that transition from fear to empathy? So, good question. Um, I think it has to start with just noticing the fear as fear. So we've talked about that some admitting to ourselves, oh, I'm afraid, and not judging that. That's not good or bad. All of us are afraid a lot of very different things. What scares me may not scare you at all. That's very common. So trying to rationalize fear doesn't do any good just notice it notice the fear notice the feeling in your body when you're afraid when I'm afraid my body gets tight I feel tense I don't feel comfortable I'm not relaxed and I don't think clearly when I'm afraid I kind of click into some sort of primal survival mode <laughs> and the way to move from fear to empathy is to begin to notice the fear as fear and, and notice the physical sensation of it in your body and learn to relax it not to just bury it or push it away but simply relax and pay attention use your awareness and your intelligence to look around you and see am i in danger so first notice fear as a physical sensation and maybe 
accompanied by a story in my mind, this person might hurt me, and then to stop, relax my body, let go of that story temporarily, and pay attention, look around and see, am I in danger? Is this a dangerous situation? Because it might be. And if it is, I need to respond. But if it isn't, then I can relax. And once I relax, I can see more clearly what's going on, and that's the doorway to empathy. Once I can see what's going on, I can start to feel the other people around me instead of being guarded. And once I can feel the other people around me, I can start to feel their experience. And that engenders empathy. That's immediately what happens for me as I start to feel empathy. And again, just to be really clear, empathy is not something that makes me good or right. Empathy makes my world connected. It builds integrity. It gives me stability and certainty and power. Empathy is what connects me to the larger world, and it's the real antidote to fear, to racism, to all the sort of littleness that we get caught up in that makes our world feel so tight and kind of impossible. I'm curious how you see that relating to the protests that we were seeing, and which started with some violence, and there were numerous people who were speaking out against it. I suspect that it was out of fear that that violence could eventually reach them, and that would probably engender a, a kind of prejudice, fear and prejudice, against that type of protest, or any protest that could possibly lead to violence again, that would threaten somebody's comfortable state of being in this world. So just to kind of parse this and keep it simple, the basis of prejudice is fear. The basis, the reason our minds prejudge things is because we're basically afraid of them, or we're afraid we're going to get hurt. So our minds go out and judge everything ahead of time so that in the name of trying to keep us safe, the point I'm trying to make in all this is that it doesn't actually keep us safe, but we do it thinking that it will. And it's important to recognize that that's how human nature is. That's how the human mind works. And if, if I want to make a statement, if I want to protest something, if I want to bring attention to something, if I scare people in the process, I'm, I'm basically undoing any greater awareness that I could bring. I'm, I'm basically feeding the problem, if you see what I mean. So there's a real case to be made for keeping these protests nonviolent. I think that was the wisdom of Martin Luther King and Gandhi, the great nonviolent masters of our era. They understood that if they made people afraid in their protests, in their resistance, in their opposition, that it would be counterproductive. And violence scares people. So I think the thing for all of us to keep in mind is that a movement, a statement, an opposition can be very good and healthy and necessary. It always seems to have been necessary in our fledgling democracy to have a movement that takes us further. And the movements, by their nature, have to oppose and call out the blind spots. But there's a way that we can do that that doesn't threaten people to the point of engaging their ego. So what we want to do is engage their empathy, not their ego. And a great example of that, and I think what's really fueling 
this current iteration of the Black Lives Movement is the videos that have been seen by so many people. You know, the on-site, in-the-moment camera footage documenting what happened. And when we see that, it's relatively easy to have empathy for the person being hurt. You know, the, the most notable one is, is, of course, George Floyd being killed by a police officer holding his knee against his neck. And people saw that on film, and what that evokes is a sense of empathy. You kind of imagine yourself laying on the ground with someone in a uniform with his knee on your neck, and you think, ooh, that's a terrible thing. I wouldn't like that. I wouldn't want to be in that position. And that fuels empathy, and the empathy, I think, is what fuels this movement. But also, and we have to remember that, that empathy is going to be the thing that takes us forward, and fear is going to be the thing that takes us backward. And anything we can do to minimize the fear is in our best interest. But what about the experience but, of rage that can occur watching that video or observing that kind of violence against somebody? Because yeah, that's I, it's it. a, you know, the benefit of anger is, is action. What we get from anger is energy. It motivates us, and I think it can be useful to be outraged, to, to see something and say, that's not okay, I want to do something about that. I think that's the benefit of rage and anger, is it takes us past the point of complacency where we can accept something, even though we don't like it, but when we get to that point of anger, we're beyond that, right? We want to do something about it. So that's good. However, if that rage gets directed against something, that usually is counterproductive. If that rage is directed against the police, we can't, it can't demonize the police. It's not, you know, that's not the problem. The problem is not the police. It's, well, um, actually, it's some people might disagree with you. In fact, I, at least to some degree, I think the problem is with the police. But I think what you're alluding to is that there's a deeper, more core issue yeah, the problem is the attitude that would enable a police officer to do that and feel justified doing it. Because there's a lot of police officers that wouldn't do that, that would recognize that as crossing a line. And the movement that I'm really feeling positive about here is raising the consciousness of our police officers. I think that's what is absolutely needed, and I think that's happening to some degree, that police officers are getting the message that their use of violence has to be done very cautiously and very wisely and with awareness. And that is a good thing. And so, you know, raising the consciousness of police is necessary. And I think, I'm hoping, that's what this movement's going to do. But to demonize the police is counterproductive because it's, you know, it's fine for you to demonize the police and say police are no good. We did that in the 60s. You know, a lot of us did that back in the 60s. The police were pigs and they were the problem. But that's all good and fine. But what happens if your car breaks down at 3 o'clock in the morning and you're, you don't have your cell phone with you? You know, who are you going to want to see? You're, you're going to want to see a police officer. Well, if you're white, you want to see the police officer. But if you're black, you may not want to see a police officer. And that's a really good lesson for all of us. I wrote that in the article that it was one of the real eye-opening things for me of this Black Lives Matter information campaign, which is to realize that for a black person, a police officer doesn't show up as safety. They show up more often than not as a threat. That's a really important thing to notice. And I think that's a really important thing for police officers 
to take to heart because my assumption, my guess is that a person doesn't become a police officer because they want to terrorize or intimidate or even manipulate and control. Some people might, but I think most officers, most people that take on that role do it because they want to help. They want to provide safety and security. And I think as police officers realize that there's a whole segment of our population that's not feeling safe around them, that should be a wake-up call. When I've noticed in my past that someone doesn't feel safe around me, I take that to heart and I try to do something about it because that doesn't feel good as a human being, as a police officer, to think, oh, this whole group of people feels threatened by me all the time. I think a lot of police officers are going to take that to heart and they're going to want to do something about it. And I think that's a beautiful thing that can come from this movement. Um, but that's the direction to go in, not not to make the police wrong, but to realize that there's a blind spot and that the consequences of that are pretty serious and it's time to do something about it for everyone's benefit. So what we're describing, I think, is where we privileged white people are recognizing that the black community probably has a very strong prejudice against the police and from history, rightly so. So that's, that's another example of prejudice and perhaps a kind of racism. Um, yeah. Being a counselor, how would you suggest that that divide begin to be bridged? Right. So in some ways, it's the same process. And I'm glad you're kind of crossing that river right now to say that racism exists is the bottom line that I'm trying to say in this article, and we all have it. So when a black person sees a police officer and makes a judgment about them without knowing that officer, without any experience with that officer, that's racism or prejudice. It may not be racism if they might be the same race, but it's prejudice. And that prejudice has the same effect, which is that it comes from the same source, which is we're all afraid. Our ego programming, our survival impulse has us programmed into thinking that safety means being, you know, wary or feeling afraid of anything that's different from us. All of us need to deal with that inside of ourselves in order to make our world, our own personal world, bigger and better and safer. So black, white, female, male, Jewish, Christian, it doesn't matter. We all have to do that, and that's the work. That's really what I'm trying to say here. Um, I think that, that black people can work together on that if they want. They could help each other realize that not all police officers are like that and work toward developing, you know, challenging their own prejudice. Um, I also think socially, as a society, we can work on that. Once we realize, as I think it's becoming very evident, and I think it's one of the, the really good things that's coming from this Black Lives Matter movement and the, and the incredible articulation of what it's like to be black, is we realize, oh my goodness, this whole population of people of color see the police as a threat. And I, as a white person, have mostly seen the police as safety. That's important to take note of. And then, as a society, we can work on that. And I think the way that I've heard a lot of people talking about now, and I think it's being implemented, and I hope it gets really focused on, is teaching police officers to enable them to provide safety for black people, not to come across to the whole population of people of color as the enemy, 
police need to change. They need to do something about that. I've heard a lot of good movements toward, for example, what they call community policing, which is having police officers on the street, in the towns, in the villages, and the cities where they work, on the street getting to know people, as opposed to just driving around in their cars, keeping a distance. As police officers do that more and become connected to their communities, they become less of a threat, and I think they show up more as safety than as a threat, and that's a process that we have to work on. And I'm sure that that must work both ways, because the police being isolated in their cruisers probably are afraid when they get out of their vehicles in a neighborhood that they don't necessarily feel safe in. So I think everyone can benefit from a more engaged and connected kind of interaction with each other. Totally. And, and what you're bringing up, Tonio, is where empathy comes in for the police. You know, more than demonizing the police, I think we need to be firm with police officers that kill someone unjustly. I think we need to be firm with them. And I think having them face the consequences of the legal system is usually a good thing. And I think we need to have empathy for police officers. One of the things the Black Lives Matter movement has brought to my attention is how scary it must be for a police officer to not know if they're going to be shot at, to not know if the person that they're confronting has a weapon. And so it's helped me to empathize with the police officers, and I think that's an important part of this that we all need to be educated about as well as put ourselves in the shoes of a police officer going into a house or a a neighborhood or a situation where something's unfolding and they don't know what to expect and they could easily be in harm's way. Put yourself in their shoes and some of the violence that the police have committed starts to make sense. Some of it doesn't. The film footage of the officer with his knee on George Floyd's neck didn't make a lot of sense to a lot of us and I think that's why the movement took off so much. But other situations where police officers have shot someone perhaps when that person, you know, had some kind of weapon, I could understand that. It doesn't necessarily make it right, and it doesn't necessarily resolve the hurt that came from it. But I can certainly put myself in that police officer's position and realize, boy, that would be a tough position to be in. My guest is Miles Schertz, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. So bringing it back home, what would you suggest for people who really want to work more deeply with those subterranean levels of racism and bias that that we all have. Yeah, so just kind of tying up the threads of what we've touched on here, the movement that we're experiencing is bringing to our attention the fact that, uh uh-oh, I may be racist, and I thought I wasn't. So that's the starting place for a lot of us is, oh, this is systemic, this is baked in, this is deeper than I thought. And to be able to admit that to ourselves is the first step, to to see that I have prejudice. And maybe as a white person, I have prejudice against black people. That's a really good first step. And then to recognize that how that makes my world less safe and smaller and more fearful. Not that I'm a bad person, but that it hurts me to be prejudiced. It doesn't serve me. Those are two really important realizations, that I am prejudiced and that it's not serving me. 
and I'm hopeful that this movement is bringing that awareness to more and more people. Then the question is, what do I do about it? And I believe that the answer is you work on yourself. You become more aware. You do a practice like meditation or mindfulness. You start to pay attention to your thoughts, your private thoughts, the ones that you don't want anybody else to see. You pay attention to those. Don't ignore them. Notice when your mind comes up with a judgment and ask yourself, is it true? Or is it just an idea? And most of the time, hopefully you'll be able to see that it's just an idea. And then if you realize you prejudge something and it's just an idea, you teach yourself how to let it go. You practice letting it go. That's really how simple it is and how basic it is. And then you're open. Then you're curious. And once you let go of your prejudice, your prejudging, then you can be open and you can be curious. You can, you can ask yourself, well, what is this? You know, what is it like to be black? I want to know. I'm curious. And again, the reason is not, not to be socially correct. It's to be open, to have your world be more open and free and inclusive. Because the more inclusive you are, the more open and free and large your world is, the better you feel. The more relaxed you are, the more secure you become, and, and the more you feel connected to a much larger whole. And ultimately, that, I think, is what fills that gaping hole inside of us that many of us experience. Exactly. So that's a beautiful full circle there, that that is what finally fills that hole. That's what finally settles your mind and your heart, is when you start to feel that you're really connected to something much bigger than you. And it starts by confronting all the differences, by noticing your fear of differences. You start to question that, you start to relax around that, and then your world starts to feel bigger. And that emptiness, that hole that we talked about earlier, that sense of there's something missing here, that starts to feel full again. And that's really powerful. That's really beautiful. Mm -hmm. So talk about the work that you do up where you are and the resources that you have available for people who want to work at this level with themselves. Yeah, so really what I do is offer people support who are wanting to make that change, who are wanting to challenge their own internal prejudices and racism and want to do something about it. It's a hard thing to change. There's no doubt about it. It's baked into us. However, there are tools. There are things that we can pick up that will help us. One of the main tools that I teach is meditation. I teach a simple form of awareness practice that comes from an ancient Buddhist tradition, and it's really useful for digging deeper into yourself and undoing the prejudice. It takes some time, it takes practice, and it's usually helpful to have support. So I run a retreat center up here in the northeast kingdom of Vermont called Sky Meadow Retreat. And in normal times without the COVID virus, we offer small group intensive retreats in what I call insight meditation, the, the traditional Buddhist form. They can be anywhere from two days to a week. And it's a really powerful medicine for going deep inside your own consciousness and just simply undoing some of the programming that's been running your life. 
in the times of COVID virus, I can offer individual sessions over Zoom or Skype to help support people's meditation practice. I've also written some books, as you mentioned. One of them about meditation is called Beyond Perception. All these books are available on Amazon.com in different forms. And I've published two new booklets during this coronavirus that address these exact same questions. One is called Human Nature, and the other is called The Tyranny of the Ego. These are small 50-page booklets, again, available on Amazon.com, and they will help you, support you in doing this work. I also teach, as you mentioned, conscious communication skills, which is essentially a way to take the work of mindfulness or presence into your daily interactions with people, and we've touched on some of those practical skills. The book that's connected to that is called Conscious Communication. It's really a manual for how to do it, a very practical kind of skill-based manual, and that's available on Amazon.com as well. And I have a website called Practical Presence. It's at practicalpresence.org, and you can read more about my work and listen to meditation talks on that website and access all these resources through that site. And when the virus is finally over, we'll be offering retreats again and I invite you to check out our different retreats that we offer here at Sky Meadow in Standard up in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. Miles Schertz, I've really enjoyed this. Thanks, Tonio. Me too. And be well. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Miles Schertz. He's a teacher, counselor, author of Conscious Communication, Beyond Perception. And next we're going to hear from James Baldwin, where he talks about what it's like to be black in this country. I'm going to improvise like a writer on some assumptions. Though I feel a little uneasy in doing this and saying this, nevertheless, what a writer is obliged at some point to realize is that he's involved in a language which he has to change. For example, for a black writer, especially in this country, to be born into the English language is to realize that the assumptions of the language are his enemy. When Othello kills Desdemona, for example, He says, I threw away a pearl richer than all my tribe. I was very young when I read that. And I wondered about that. Richer than my tribe? I really had to think about being as black as sin, as black as night, black-hearted, in order to deal with that. At a certain time in my life, when I was in France, where I could not speak to anybody because I spoke no French, but no one wanted to speak to me. (laughs) I dropped into a silence in which I heard, for the first time, really heard and began to be able to try to deal with the beat of the language of the people who had produced me. Event I was not able to do it here. I did it far away. And when I was able to hear that music, because when I was young, there were no black writers as models, and white writers could not be models either. I did not agree at all with the moral predicament of Huckleberry Finn concerning nigger Jim. (laughs) It was not, after all, a question 
but whether I should be sold back into slavery. <laughs> I want to try to shift a certain assumption. I want to suggest that instead of, as we have now for far too long, according to me, instead of speaking about the civil rights movement, which is an American phrase, which I'm going to go into in a moment, which upon examination means nothing at all, let us pretend that I stand before you as a witness and a survivor of the latest slave rebellion. I put it that way because Malcolm X and I met many years ago when Malcolm was doing a debate with a very young sit-in student and Malcolm was a black Muslim and the radio station called me to moderate this discussion, which I did. I was not needed, I must tell you. Malcolm was one of the most beautiful, most gentle men I met in all my life. He asked the boy a question, which I now present to you. If you are a citizen, why do you have to fight for your civil rights? If you're fighting for your civil rights, that means you're not a citizen. And in fact, the legality of this country has never had anything to do with its former slaves. We are still governed by the slave codes. Now, when I say a slave rebellion, I mean that what is called a civil rights movement was really insurrection. It was co-opted. Now the late J. Edgar Hoover is in his grave, God bless him. <laughs> A lot of what I knew and many other people knew during those years and only a fraction of what we knew during all those years can now be more or less discussed. So one can say that the latest slave rebellion was brutally put down. We all know what happened to Medgar. And it was not some lunatic who happened to be wandering around Mississippi with a gun. The one lunatic in Mississippi at that moment <laughs> happened to have a gun somewhere. And by some odd coincidence, unbelievable, shot Medgar Evers in the carport of his home in the sight and hearing of his wife and his children. And Medgar was 37. The lunatic was carried into the front door visibly of a nursing home and out the back door, and that was that. We all know what happened to Malcolm. We all know what happened to Martin. We know what happened to Fred Hampton and Mark Clark and so many more. Honey, don't tell me. <laughs> I mean, the list is long. That is the result of a slave rebellion. Now, I'm saying that since we are the survivors of it, since we have our children to raise, to save, I'm saying that to say a very brutal thing must be said. Must be said. The intentions of this melancholy country 
as concerns black people and anyone who doubts me can ask any Indian I've always been genocidal They needed us for labor and for sport. Now, they can't get rid of us. <laughs> we cannot be exiled, and we cannot be accommodated. Now something's got to give. The machinery of this country operates day in and day out hour by hour until this hour to keep the nigger in his place. When I was young, among other things, I used to run an elevator. I am not needed to run the elevator no more. A whole lot of things we used to do we ain't needed for no more. On the other hand, we're here. It is true that this is going to be a difficult summer. In every city in this nation now, black father is standing in the street watching black son. They're watching each other. And neither one of them got no place to go. That is not their fault. There's nothing to do with their value, their merit, their capabilities. There may be nothing worse under heaven to be no greater crime than to attack a man's integrity, to attempt to destroy that man. For I know, in spite of the American Constitution, in spite of all the born-again Christians, <laughs> I know that my father was not a mule and not a thing. And that my sister was not born to be the plaything of idle white sheriffs. What am I saying? I'm saying we find ourselves between a rock, if you like, and a hard place. I am saying something else. I am saying that our presence in this country terrifies every white man walking. I'm going to go back and clarify that in a minute. I want to suggest, and it's a very important suggestion, first of all, this is not now, never has been, and now never will be a white country. There is not a white person in this country, from our president to all his friends, who can prove he's white. It is absolutely true. <laughs> the people who settled this country came from many places. And where they were before they came here, France, England. In France, they were French. In England, they were English. In Italy, they were Italian. In Greece, they were Greek. In Russia, they were Russian. It is worth noting, by the way, that this phenomenon called Europe has never agreed about anything 
at all except us. <laughs> they don't get along until this hour. The only thing that ever unites them, the common market, for example, is about us. And they can't get that together. They're squabbling over what's left of their colonies. In short, they lost their clowns, Ray Charles might put it. And this means that we have to consider that white, Malcolm said, it's a state of mind. Because I don't want to be misunderstood as saying, I'm not talking about white people. Insofar as you think you're white, you're irrelevant. <laughs> we can no longer afford that particular romance. <laughs> we are all, in any case, here. I want to point out a paradox. The only people in this country who have any notion of who they are, the only people in this country who have any notion of who they are, are the black people in this country. And I will tell you why. When the Italian got here, or the Greek, or whoever, there was a moment in his life when he had to start to speak English, when he became a guy named Joe. And that meant he couldn't speak to his father, because his father couldn't speak English. That meant a rupture, a profound rupture. So the son did become a guy named Joe, and never found out anything else about himself. We come out of a history, black people in this country come out of a history which was never written down. The connection between father and son, between mother and daughter, until this hour, and in spite of the danger in which we stand, and all that I know is happening all around us every day, we forged ourselves out of this fire. Tell them. And, and if we could do that, and we have done that, we can deal with what now lies before us. I know I ain't got no jobs to give nobody. I know that. I know I ain't got no money. I can't co-opt you. <laughs> I know many things must be done, and I know that I can't do them. But I also know that I haven't got to do them alone. We have never been alone. That's the mystery. Every white person in this country, I do not care what he says or she says, knows one thing. They may not know, as they put it, what I want. But they know they would not like to be black here. If they know that, they know everything they need to know. And whatever else they say is a lie. Bear it in mind, children, I mean that. The American idea of progress, when the Americans talk about progress, they mean 
how fast I become white. <laughs> and it's a trick bag. Because I know perfectly well I can never become white. Right. I've drunk my share of dry martinis. <laughs> proven myself civilized in every way I can. <laughs> but there is an irreducible difficulty. <laughs> Something doesn't work. <laughs> well, I decided, I decided, I might as well act like a nigga. The black people of this country stand in a very strange place. So do the white people of this country stand in a very strange place. And almost for the very same reason. Though we approach it from different points of view, I suggest you think about it. That what the CIA, for example, I use the word advisedly. <laughs> for example, or the President of the United States, for example, don't know about the world which surrounds them is the price they pay for not knowing me. If you couldn't deal with my father, how are you going to deal with the people in the streets of Tehran? I could have told you if anyone had asked. And the fall of the Shah did not in the least astonish me, <laughs> nor did it make me sad. But this means that the black people of this nation represent for the Western powers. And for the Western powers, for the moment, bearing in mind what we must do to save our children, for the moment, let us substitute the word conspiracy. There is a reason. There is a reason that no one wants our children until this day educated. Hmm? When we attempt ourselves to do it, we find ourselves up against the vast machinery of the system of education in this country, which is, among other things, a billion-dollar industry. And the billion-dollar industry is more important than the life of the child. Now. I want to suggest, and I want everyone to think about it. I know the machinery is vast, ruthless, cunning, and thinks of nothing, in fact, but itself, which means us, because we are a threat to the machinery. We have lived through, as I suggested, a slave rebellion. We cannot pick up guns because they got the guns, you know. We cannot hit those streets again because they're waiting for us. Hmm? We have to do something else. 
Before each slave rebellion, there was something which I now call non-cooperation. How to execute this in detail is something each one of us have to figure out. But we could begin with the schools and take our children out of those schools. Take them off those buses. Everybody knows who thinks about it. That you can't change a school without changing the neighborhood, and you can't change the neighborhood without changing the city. Ain't nobody prepared to change the city because they want the city to be white. All the American cities have begun to crumble when the white people moved out to get away from the niggers. Every crisis in every city is caused by that. How can you expect the people who cannot educate their own children to educate anybody else? This will be, well, contested. <laughs> Nevertheless, One's got to start somewhere. And I'll use that as an example. There are other things I have in mind. But I'm not really a tactician. I'm a disturber of the peace. I want you to think about it. <laughs> because I know what can happen if you do think about it. One more thing. It is useful to bear in mind that this country and indeed the West, has been living on a war economy since 1939. It is useful to bear in mind that we would be at war now if we could afford to be. <laughs> Ain't no place left to go to war. All the colonies, though they still belong to Europe, are no longer where they were. Now it's a matter of getting the resources of the country out of European hands and African hands. And we are involved in that. The black people of this country are involved in that. If we, this country, could afford to raise an army and afford to go to war, it would do so. This country cannot raise an army to set anywhere in the world which it can trust. We hold the Trump. When you try to slaughter our people and leave them with nothing to lose, you create somebody with nothing to lose. And if I ain't got nothing to lose, what are you going to do to me? <laughs> we have one thing to lose. That's our children. And we've never done that yet. After all, we haven't done that yet. And there's no reason for us to do it now. We hold the trunk, I said, right? Patience and shuffle the cards. Thanks. That was James Baldwin from a speech he gave in Berkeley in 1979. 
And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.